Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Welcome to this very special show of the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, and one of the things we're going to do today is we're going to boil down the meatiest nuggets, the most interesting points of view and stories and tips so that all of you busy professionals out there can come listen to these two episodes and get most of the value from a whole series of fantastic conversations with leaders. Do tell us a little (laughs) bit about who your best boss ever is. Steph really fostered a environment of camaraderie. She always trusted her team members to take ownership over whether it was writing or events. So for example, when I was just starting, she would always encourage me to write things that I probably had no business writing because I was just starting. And she would often edit the crap out of them, but still mm-hmm. to give me that opportunity to really flex my writing skills, even when I was still starting and, and knowing that it would probably be more work for her. She was really committed to teaching and giving us those experiences to help our careers and help us grow. I think that trust that she instilled in the team and allowed us to build helped shape all of our self-confidences. And if you look at that team and where they are now, almost every single person is working in quite senior roles at various companies. And I think it's really testament to that initial trust that she, that she showed to us and let us sort of go off on our own probably earlier than we should have. And so it sounds like she threw you in the deep end. You were just an intern, just starting out. And then she gave you the latitude to, you know, take a swing at it on your own even if she had to do some heavy lifting to kind of help get the quality of the work up to where it needed to be, she still put you out there and let you see what you were capable of. Absolutely. And I think that that's something that I'm seeing now from her perspective in my current role, which is as you hire more junior team members and you want them to learn and grow and mentor and teach, it is more work to facilitate that journey and to help them grow. It's often easier to just do it yourself. But I think realizing now the efforts and the lengths she went to, to really help those who are starting hone those skills again at a detriment to her. And, and she probably is where I get a lot of my work ethic because she, I know it took more work for her to run the team in this way. And I would often get edits back from her, you know, 2am, 3am, not expecting a response. One of the other things that I wanted to mention about Steph and why she really had such an impact on my career. And, and one trait that I think is so important and that I continue to at least try to implement with my own team is she always gave her team credit for success. She wasn't ever someone to put up her hand and say, that was my idea. I was involved in this. Obviously, as a manager, she had a hand in anything that was successful. But even as an intern, if you had an idea or you had a story pitch and and we went with it and it performed really well, she was the first person to say, that was Sam's idea. She wrote it. It was wonderful. It didn't even matter if she had edited the whole thing and totally reworked it. And in the end, it was like a fraction of what you had originally suggested. She always gave credit. The VP for our region, gentleman named Don Mitchell, just his vision, 
his communication skills, just a sincere concern for you as a person, not only as somebody that works on his or her team, but as a person in your development, in your well-being. Just a little story. His son had had a, a minor car accident a few weeks before. And I'm in Sarnia. People know Sarnia is down by, you know, not far from Detroit, Windsor. And I've got to go to Toronto to the airport. And I had a company car, Coca-Cola bottler company car. And he said, Cam, it's calling for snow tomorrow. I want you to rent a bigger, safer car to drive to the airport in Toronto, just so that you get there for sure and you get there safe. And so that that is just one of many examples of just the type of person he was. These people, you want to work hard for them. You want to make them proud of you. You want to do whatever you can, whatever is physically possible to help them win because they care so much about you. And, they, and it's sincere. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not the politician sincere. It's, it's real. Right. Even my experience at Rotman over the course of the last three years had a leader there that, you know, she was extraordinarily results focused as well, you know, very strong personality type, but valued inclusivity, valued everyone having a voice at the table, you know, very much was about us being creative, taking risks, creating a culture where risk-taking was rewarded and succeed or fail. It was really about learning. And I felt that that was quite different from, you know, call it my 15 year history in consulting. It was actually quite refreshing. I would say that the ones that come top of mind did offer me trust, flexibility, autonomy, and the trust was probably the number one at the very, very top of it all. It's hard to describe, but I would use the words or I would use the analogy, they have my back. And you only really know what you have my back means when you experience it. It was, it always felt like they gave me the benefit of the doubt first before feeding into any sort of negative dialogue. The other tangible thing that comes from feeling trust is that you feel braver. Mm. You feel more okay to take risks. You feel more okay to take control to make decisions because you're not fearing any of the ramifications. I think risk-taking is what makes you grow. And, you know, when you're in an environment of trust and that trust breeds risk, then you know that there is no outcome that is bad. If, it, if you take the risk and it's successful, yay, because, you know, winning breeds winning. But when you're in a safe environment and you have trust, if you fail, you know that it's going to be seen as something that you're learning from and how you're going to do better next time. And so it's a, it's a win-win outcome, whether it's a win or whether it's a fail. So my second boss, best boss ever, is of course why I love my job today and the owner of Extend Communications, Scott Lyons. You know, there's there's a million reasons why he's the, the best boss ever to me, and I think to everyone else that works there. First and foremost, I think that he motivates and inspires everyone around him to share a vision for his company that is all-inclusive and that creates an incredible culture where everyone can enjoy coming to work. That's the goal. 
love your job, enjoy coming to work, have everything that you need to accomplish and be successful at your job, but even more than that, to be able to grow and not just grow within the company. The company is growing and has been growing for years and years, and people have an opportunity to move and grow within the company, but it goes beyond that. You know, you can use Extend as a stopping ground. You have other aspirations. You have other goals. You have other things you want, other potential, other things you want to do in your life, and it's just his ability to keep you in a job, but to still pursue your dreams or your desires or whatever and use us as a as a stopping ground and and even in that you get the best that people have to offer because you're a part of their their development and what they want when we all moved remotely it was a it was a huge undertaking scott made it his mission to contact every single employee contact every employee and say how's it going how are you feeling how's life treating you How are you feeling emotionally? How is this affecting you? Is your family okay? Do you have the tools you need to work with? How's your job? Are you able to to do what you want? Do you have any problems? Tell me what your problems are. Is there anything I can do to help? And he contacted every single employee. And so that is an example of how, you know, he's just leads by, by example, really by showing, you know, that you, that you care and, and, and that it's important. Well, I have to say my first boss was an HR leader that I worked with about 15 years ago. And what I really liked about her was that she provided clear direction, empowered her team, and just created an environment where she really allowed us to be ourselves. The other thing that I really loved about her was she had the most infectious laugh. The type of laugh that actually would travel down the hallway, up and down the stairs, and right back all around. And I'll never forget that she, we had a new VP that joined the company. And one of the first things he said to her was, you laugh a lot. And her response was, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I do. So get used to it. <laughs> And I it, love it, that. Yes, it was just so awesome. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, we worked so hard, but we had a lot of fun. The second one is my current boss, I would have to say. And what I really like about him is that he has a nice balance. And you don't normally see that at an executive level between the technical and the soft skill side. And he has this way of going, of kind of transitioning between each very seamlessly. The other thing that I like is that one of the first months where when I first joined the company, I've just been with the company for over a year. One of the first things that I heard from folks was that he really provided clear direction. And what they really liked about him was that he's not hierarchical. So like whenever he engaged with them, he felt like they felt like they were heard, that he didn't have this air about him. Oh my goodness, I'm speaking to the president. He has a natural way about him. And it just made things very easy in terms of engaging with him as well. You know, for him, the other thing that I really liked about him was that he just gave me carte blanche to say, you know what, here's where we want to go as an organization. Here's the culture that I want us to strive towards. And so Sharon, just go to it. He just gave me the opportunity to really think about the ideas, engage my peers. And and that meant a lot, you know, because we didn't know each other very well. And there was just, it was just easy. So to this day, even now, 
He just is, you know, Sharon, you're the head of the people pillar. I'm trusting you. So just, you know, make it happen. And and that means a lot. So Dan Lear, it's L-I-E-R, if you want to pull him up. Dan's in our industry. He's a speaker. He's actually the top speaker in Las Vegas. So he was my boss day in, day out. We lived in the same community. We'd see each other on the weekends at the pool because we had corporate housing. We'd see each other on happy hours on Friday. So not just like a boss you would go see at an office place. You're on the road living literally with this individual. So he literally took me under his wing. He's 10 years older than me, exactly. So we just had so many things. He said, you're, you're me 10 years ago, man. I see myself in you. So I want to I wanna make sure you don't stumble the way I did. So he, he took my success and failure very personally. I was lucky to have him as really my first real boss, I would call him. And, and Tony was his boss. So I'm one degree removed from Tony Robbins himself. So we had a script we had to follow to a T. I mean, Tony is really big on framing. Context is what we call, we call it syntax, the order in which you present information. We had to record ourselves, send videos in. Back in the day, it was tapes, right? To Tony, he would review them and then give you feedbacks. But Dan would go out to live meetings with you. And I'll never forget this. My first cycle, that's what we call the city cycle, was Atlanta. And, you know, I'm fresh out of law school. I was actually the, the most, quote unquote, educated person on the team. I was a little cocky, you know, single guy, just kind of thinking I had the swagger. I was, I was actually a competitive um in law school, we would do a mock trial. So I was used to being in front of a judge, a jury, speaking, presenting came very naturally for me. So to have Dan come out and ride with you, your boss come out and sit in the meeting. And I will never forget this. It was a, it was a, a real estate company and he recorded it and we were in the car and he asked me a question. And now I know this famous question. He says, Mike, let me ask you a question. He goes, zero to 10. 10 is the best presentation you've ever done for us. Zero is the worst ever. What would you rate yourself? And I'm thinking, okay, loaded question. How do I answer this? No such thing as a 10 because you can always improve, right? And I said, I'd say eight. I'd say eight. And he just goes, wow, wow. Never forget that. He said two wows, which I didn't know what that meant at the time. He said, I would have gave you like a two. So we got a problem because you think you're an eight and that's a two. So we got a lot of work to do. So this weekend, I shouldn't, I better not see you out at the pool. I better not see you at happy hours in the neighborhood. I better not see you out the team. I want you to nail that script. I want, if I knock on your door at eight o'clock Saturday night, okay, I want to see those big post-it notes all around your condo and having you have walked and paced that whole thing hundreds of times to nail the script because you don't have it nailed. Now, that was my biggest first lesson is, holy crap, I'm not prepared. There's always another level. I mean, there's so much coaching going on in this moment, right? I didn't leave my apartment all weekend. I studied that script. I literally paced that. I had the post-it notes of every chunk, as we called it. And I did my meeting on Monday. Did did much better, obviously. But he came out and rode with me a month later. And he told me he was proud of me, which I appreciate. You know, having your boss and coach tell you he's proud of you. But he said, you still got work to do, buddy. You're only, you're the newest guy on the team and you still don't have it. There's, there's tonality shifts. There's body language or certain anchors that have to go into that script that you don't have nailed. So I was kind of like the first lesson of the worst case scenario for my own self, but I, I never saw like the veterans majorly screw up. I just saw myself screw up and I know how hard he was on me because he had to over-prepare. His name was Doug Haggard. So I walked into a brand new thing. I'm young guy, all wet behind the ears, so to speak. One of the things I really appreciated about Doug, he was he was tough on me, but in a kind way, if you can accept that. But he also allowed me to be myself. 
he was not well-respected because when you ask this question, what I found in, in corporations, in corporate, is that you had to be really upward serving and not mm. downward saving. So upward serving is, is that you looked after your boss, you didn't necessarily look after people. That's what a best boss is all about, that they, they are looking out for your world and for their world. If the boss is smart, the boss realizes as the people below him grow, he gets to grow. And I love it when I go to strategic coach and Dan says, you know, the CEOs don't really like this because their box is the same size as everybody else's box on the TV. And, and, and they don't have any hierarchy of position or anything like that. All the trappings of the, of the world have gone. Well, now it's up to you. If you're authentic and you care and you help them grow, they'll help you grow. One is Ken Allen. And we had a real issue. I, I call it a leaky bucket challenge, right? Where I was talking about what a great job we were doing in sales Look at all this acquisition, all these new customers we were bringing on, but the revenue wasn't really growing that fast. And he looked at me and he said, what if we just kept the ones we had? He said, it seems to me like you're losing more business than you can possibly bring on. But what if we refocused our energy? And I said, Ken, you just don't understand. We make mistakes in this business. We're not perfect. You're never going to keep them all. It's really competitive. And then he challenged me, said, who do you bank with? And at the time I was like, okay, I bank with the Royal Bank of Canada, RBC. He said, how long have you been with the bank? And I sat back and I said, well, I I think since my dad, when I had a paper route, took me over as a kid and I opened a savings account. And he goes, exactly. Why have you never left the bank? And I go, I don't know. He goes, has your life changed over the years? And of course, I'd grown up, gone to university, had to have a bank account for that to pay for things. I'd work, started working, bought homes. Because every time you had an issue, he said, they were there to help you. And they cared about you. And they gave you no reason to leave. So he totally like shook my foundation on how we should view a customer and look at service. And he said, I just want you to focus all your energy on our existing customers by understanding what we're doing wrong and why they're leaving and how we can fix it. What if I said you cannot open another new account? You cannot bring on a new customer till you fix why we're losing customers. So when we said that, and I told the sales force this, and we we talked about it in our regional meetings with the team from the US and the team from Mexico, people thought we were crazy. But sure enough, Six months into that strategy where I could not open a new account, amazingly, our growth rates were higher than when we were acquiring all that new business. That's just one example of him as a strategist challenging the status quo, being brave enough to make decisions that most people would not take, Mm. and to think about a problem in a different way, to not just do what you've always done. And so... Sometimes that will come from your his brain or your, your own brain. But the other side to it is you have to be open to new ideas, different ideas, different approaches. And that another thing Ken was very good at was making sure he was willing to listen to anyone and everyone and to, to hear where the problems are, what the issues are, and then would put the resources on to tackle it. I've had best bosses throughout my career and there are things I've liked about them. And I think the traits that I most have enjoyed, one is that they are truly authentic individuals. And by that, I mean, they're so down to earth despite their title 
you never feel like you're speaking to somebody that you should be afraid of or shouldn't show your true colors to. They're very genuine in both your personal and professional development. And you'll notice that they operate that way, both in the office and out of the office, because truly I, the individuals that I've interacted with who I still know, and I would very much go work for them in a heartbeat because they really left a strong impression on me around they cared about me as a person and had a vested interest in me. They offered me trust right from the very get-go. And for me, those are the traits that when I think of a great boss, those are the ones that sort of last in my mind. I think a lot of women probably get the same feedback around they were either too aggressive or at some point are too assertive. There probably isn't a woman that I don't know of that hasn't been told that. And so I've been given that same feedback at some point. But with those individuals who gave me that feedback, they offered first and foremost the opportunity for me to impart what I think happened in the meeting, how I saw it, and what I thought occurred. And then what they shared was their feedback. And their feedback wasn't negative. They simply offered their observations and perspectives. And so in that situation, they said, you know, when you came forward and provided your opinion at that executive stereo, it felt like you were trying to drive to a conclusion without allowing the audience the time to absorb the recommendation. So you were driving a little too fast versus allowing the audience to say, okay, let's pause on that recommendation and allow that executive team now to own that decision versus you felt like you were trying to drive it within seconds. And that actually made me stop and think. And I thought, gee, you're right. And what was going on in my head was typically these meetings aren't more than 30 minutes. So I'm such a driver, but I'm also very aware of the time and the clock ticking. And I want to get to the end of the meeting and I want to complete the meeting in its totality. And sometimes you have to recognize that it may take longer than one meeting, even if the outcome was you needed that decision today. You may have to drive in that meeting that if we don't drive to this decision today, here's what's going to happen in the next two weeks. Are we okay with that? That really allowed me to kind of step back from myself and go, oh my God, I do do that. Oh, and I see that now in a different light. They gave me that feedback and it certainly didn't come across negative, but it gave me such a perspective into my own behavior that it was like a light bulb. And it wasn't even delivered in such a way where you felt that you were being scolded. Like it was more, can I offer you this observation? Here's Here's what really needs to happen is these people need to own the decision, yet you're driving it. So give it time to breathe. And then that was me just understanding that, hey, it's not about me in that moment driving to the clock, the decision, or the time, trying to get to the end of the meeting, get the job done. It's really about them. So how do I help them get there? And that just completely changed my own perspective. The one that really stands out in my mind is uh, Louise Taylor Green. And what made her my top choice was that 
when I had to share with her some pretty tricky news. So here she had lost her director of organizational development. So now she's got all of me and my colleagues, individual contributors reporting to her. She's a senior executive. She doesn't have time to meet one-on-one with this, but every week she made the time because she wanted to support us wholeheartedly to continue to do the great work we were doing. And also because the organization so needed us in this massive time of transformation. And in one of those meetings, I had to tell her, a local organization, another healthcare hospital has asked me to come and start up the organizational development department. And I kept saying no. And they kept asking me and I went for an interview and I've got the job and it just seems like such a great opportunity. And I expected her to be so angry with me. This was a terrible time to leave. And what she did was she pushed all of her papers aside, the list of things that we needed to talk about and the files that her and I had both brought to the table. And she said, okay, the next four meetings that you, if you give me four weeks, the next four conversations we're going to have is about you and your next phase of your career. And that's exactly, we, she just said, I'll trust that you're going to hand over the projects. We don't need to talk about it anymore. And that's what she did. She mentored me and having the best boss transition. I, that's what I'm calling wow. it now. And so for example, she helped me discern how to create a value proposition process so that when I started the organization, I initiated the, the first blush of people's experience of organizational development was one of collaboration and support versus them resisting it or me having to prove myself. She said, just, just believe that you're already there and your partners partnering with them and to serve them. So what would that look like? And we co-created much with her guidance, the most amazing new way to start, not to start a department, but to start any job. And I have to tell you, I have led and mentored so many people in that process, all down to Louise's supporting guidance. It was too soon to leave. It was a bad time to leave. She was probably so busy. She had small children at home still. And she just realized my job is to support this person uh, across from me. This person just really did a phenomenal job in kind of shaping the future of my career path. He did it in many different ways, but I would say the biggest thing for me was his ability to listen and engage. And those things for me were were really powerful because he would be able to listen to a situation that I had encountered, which at the time I felt was was catastrophic, if you will, and and really just getting emotional into the moment. He was just so phenomenal at boiling things down, calming it down, distilling what the issues were and uh, trying to work with me to find a solution. And, And that was incredibly powerful. And I think that really helped to shape the future from my perspective. It really opened my eyes as to what being a real leader is. I've never forgotten it because, you know, I've also experienced the other side where, where you have a boss that doesn't listen so well. So the first was when I first started actually back in the workforce full-time after having a family. And this boss was a controller of a, of a large U.S. corporation, which was a very competitive corporation. He gave me an opportunity that I probably wasn't qualified to do, but he had confidence in me. And I think from him, he really encouraged me down the path that my career took today. But more than that, he was so 
interested and about my success and how I was doing. The thing I remember the very most about him and that I have always tried to practice in in what I do in my career is he was so super busy. And every time I rapped on his door to ask, you know, to have a question or I didn't understand something, he was swamped with papers, just piled everywhere on his desk. And he would just put them aside and he'd go sit down. And I had his undivided attention every time. It was, he made me feel like I was the most important person, that I was valued and that what I had to say mattered and that I, I deserve to be listened to. That is, is something that I've taken away with me in my personal life and in my professional life. And the second that I'll talk about as well is Mike Barra. And he said, you're going to have to learn what motivates them, what excites them and get them to buy in and trust that you care as much as they do about their success. And if you're able to do that, you'll unlock tremendous potential. And I think he has a tremendous self-awareness that I, I recognize in myself and try to have this ability to, to be ruthlessly honest with yourself, to understand what your strengths are, to understand what your opportunities are. And in today's day and age is where the difficult situations around diversity, equality, and inclusiveness, recognizing some of our unconscious bias and recognizing that even when we're really good people at heart, we have biases and we might not always be right. We might have blinders on. We might not see things. He's helped me and embraces this idea of we need to make sure we get as many viewpoints around us to help us make decisions. You know, the the one thing that he made me aware of, it's self-awareness, having emotional intelligence to, to kind of look at a situation holistically versus just in that particular moment. The biggest thing for me is if you hit the challenge or hit a wall, it doesn't mean that you stop there. You, you just got to find a way around or over the wall to, to get to that end game. At the end of the day, I think making a mistake is, is an opportunity to learn and and draw from that. It, it's experience. And we right. all have experience, which means we've, we've all experienced failure. His name is Jason Reed. You know, he made me feel smart, made me feel valued. And then something we can certainly unpack in more detail and important for me, he made me feel safe. And there's just a lot of thought leadership right now about how safety breeds innovation. And you have to have a culture of creativity and idea sharing. And I thought he just did an outstanding job with that. I came to realize in my professional career that I suffered something that many do called imposter syndrome. It doesn't mean that you're not capable. It certainly doesn't mean that you're not able to execute. It just means that occasionally you, you might feel like you're not delivering the value that you were intended to. And I, I just thought that Jason did such an outstanding job of being able to shepherd me through those moments where I felt fraudulent, even if I wasn't and really unlocked the potential for me to really capitalize on where I was good. And I could tell you, it started from the very first time I met him in the interview process. So I went to the interview, flew into Florida to talk to him and a couple of other folks. And like is often the case, we had a couple of hours scheduled, but I remember he and his partners were posing incredibly difficult questions. Ones to which I, I had no real great answer. And I remember regularly answering it first by saying, you know, I'm not sure or I don't know, or I'll have to think about that. 
And at the conclusion of that first hour, I was thinking, geez, you know, I, I didn't hit the mark here. I, I just wasn't able to, to give good concrete answers. And I'll never forget him inviting in one of his senior leaders toward the end of that hour and saying, listen, I want you to meet this guy, Eric. He had the best answers to some of our questions because they all started with, I don't know, or I'll have to think about that. And he said, we're wrestling with very difficult challenges here. And we're looking to divine and design approaches that other organizations haven't tackled or taken. So we're really looking for somebody who wants to get involved in that way, rather than somebody that thinks they have all the answers. So he had me hooked right from the beginning, if that makes sense. Oh, that is fantastic. That is such a good example. I thought what you were going to say, I'm, I'm going to admit out loud that I thought what you were going to say is that he coached you on not starting your answers that way. And so I'm smiling over here because the brilliance of being able to appreciate when people start by admitting that they don't know and then talking out loud about what they think, we don't, we don't acknowledge what a good trait that actually is. I agree. And I think it really leads to some of his characteristics. And I would characterize him as an egoless leader. And that comes up a lot. And so for me to give that some definition, at least from my perspective, could be important. It's not that Jason didn't have an ego. He was a highly, highly confident person. And you might remember that. Yeah. And he, he had a, a, a nice big ego, but not when it came to trying to tackle problems or pretending he had the answers to everything. And so his level of vulnerability and recognizing that if he didn't have the answers, he wanted thought partners to help him figure those answers out was second to none in my career. And I, I think that that's kind of a, a great way to think about, you know, how he unlocked that potential for safety and this feeling that your opinions and your thoughts and how you wanted to approach things would be valued. As part of imposter syndrome, he would regularly say I could show up from time to time with these very, very strong and probably correct opinions, but I would all shucks my way through it. Those were his words. <laughs> right? And I remember him sitting down and saying, stop, no all shucks. And it became a, a regular affirmation, if you will, for us over the years that we worked together, that occasionally, you know, figuratively, as I was going out the door and he would say, hey, no all shucks. <laughs> right? Just a reminder to go in there and have the confidence that I should. And I think the reason it was important is I spent a good bit of time as a first line leader. But when I went to work for Jason, it was my first exposure to becoming a second line leader and the path to senior leadership. Can I ask you a question about your, let's call it your worst boss ever? So I think the number one quality that has turned me off consistently over the last however many years is insecurity. It's become such a pervasive quality in maybe my industry because there's so many changes in publishing. And for as long as I've worked in digital media, it's always been seen as the, the nasty family member that nobody really wants to acknowledge because they're going to throw a wrench in the dinner or the party or whatever. Because when I worked in digital media at the very beginning of my career as an intern, it was you know, coming for, for print. Print was always mm -hmm. worried about digital. And then my second long-term career was in broadcasting. And so same idea, digital media was coming for broadcast and for television and people were, you know, cutting cable and all these, and all these things. So I've dealt with insecure bosses time and time again. And I think that that's one 
quality that I always try to, if I even feel it coming in, I, I recognize it and I push it away because it makes everything else so much more challenging. It right. fosters such a negative environment and the people who work for you, they feel that insecurity and, and it's, and it's okay to be worried about job security in this day and age. It happens all the time, but to manage from that point and to feel like you need to prove yourself because you're insecure about your future, you're insecure about your role at the company. I think that's the most negative trait that I've witnessed, the, the most toxic trait that I've witnessed in the workplace. And it just, it really does trickle down into every decision and, and the way that your team feels. You know, even today, coaching so many leaders, I think insecurity really clouds good decision-making, good people skills, good communication. Unfortunately, there's a lot of environments where I think of, you know, I think your word of toxic is the right word because insecurity is catchy. <laughs> if your boss is insecure, then all of a sudden you start to wonder why you're feeling so confident. And so the interesting thing is, is when you see insecurity happening somewhere in the top of the house, a lot of the time it's catchy. When we went through a reorg at the organization, I had a leader that I think the job was too much for him. I think he'd spent so much of his career positioning himself, looking right, saying the right things, managing up, that he forgot that at one point it would come to roost. Because if you don't really understand the business and get into the details and genuinely care about everyone, that the big size of the business, you can't skate forever. And I think this individual did a great job um, and in some ways, he was brilliant in front of a customer, in front of an audience, scripted. He, he was a great order, a good communicator, and he looked the part, but there wasn't the depth. And that meant at times, he wasn't able to make the difficult decisions. He didn't trust himself. And so the biggest mistake that I think he made was that he didn't make any decisions. He didn't, when two companies came together, he didn't choose a path of A or B. He just kept blending it together. Senior level back on the bottler side, uh, command and control with disrespect, I would say, or with a lack of respect. And the impact that had on people on the, in the organization, on the team, and it would create just as good, strong values and attributes can transcend and, and can, you know, permeate the entire organization. So can disrespect those, some of those negative elements. They can, especially when it's coming from a senior level, it can permeate the organization. And, and so that's, I saw that and I saw how it damaged good people who had to eventually exit and then how it turned some, some people with good potential almost to the dark side in terms of where they gravitated, how they responded and reacted. But I can think of one in particular that just had an act for making it me feel like my contribution wasn't that important and that I was dispensable. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to, I'm going to give you one particular story. I just find it interesting. Um, I was making my first transition from first line to second line leadership. I was about 30 years old and I was doing some open water swimming at that point in my life. And I had somehow contracted a little bug, a stomach bug. 
And it was pretty profound though, because I remember being at a client's office. I know this is a little weird, so sorry to the audience, but I was at a client's office and got a call from the public health department in the state of Texas. They had chased me down. This was pre everyone having a cell phone at their disposal. And I remember them tracking me down and saying, hey, you've got this bug. It's contagious. You might want to think about getting some medication. You're not in urgent or dire circumstances, but we want to get it addressed. When the health department takes the time to track you down while you're mobile and you're in a different part of the state, it begs of pretty important circumstances. So I called this particular boss at the time, and I remember explaining to them the situation that I would just gotten the call, and I was due to go to one of our largest partners that next day to do a partner review. And I remember this boss saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, you'll be able to take care of that when you get home, and the assumption that I was still going to go to this partner the next day. And I just felt like that was not in my service. And I'm a bit ashamed to say I made a very poor decision at that time to call the partner and do something I would never ordinarily do. And I'm just pointing out that it created unnatural behaviors by me because of the way it made me feel. I asked this partner to express that I had come out there for the partner review, even though I had no intention of doing so because I needed to go home and get this addressed and get on the medication. I put the partner in an uncomfortable position. Right. Right. And I wish I could get that decision back. I later apologized to that partner for making such a poor decision. But I say these were the, you know, downstream byproducts of that kind of leadership that was more about results rather than the people and how they feel. So one is, you know, individuals who are passive aggressive, which to me really reflects I'm nice to you in person, but then behind the scenes, I'm operating in a way that feels deliberately intentional or disrespectful of you. And, and that shows up in many different forms, whether that's bullying tendencies or inauthenticity. And I also think it's micromanagement. I've never been good at being micromanaged. I am very much a person who likes to drive my day, my outcome, my team. And so when that's all sort of locked in, if you will, it doesn't feel empowering or very freeing or the ability to generate creativity and sort of be yourself. And I like what you're saying too, because it's funny how working for the not best boss sometimes can, it creates a choice. Like you have this moment where you can either mirror the same behavior back. So I know I get into a lot of conversations with clients where the instinct is, you know, for example, passive aggressive or micromanagement, all of a sudden they start to become passive aggressive or micromanagement. And I always say, this is what culture looks like. <laughs> you know, people don't understand what culture is. I'm like, culture is this intangible thing, but it's the, we all mirror each other, you know, in a way. So to your point, you have this opportunity where you can either behave like that person or you can become much more rooted in your values and make a much stronger effort to, to not be those things. <laughs> It's lack of access, lack of clarity in the instruction. It's blame. Blame is a big thing for me in, in that environment where there's a bad boss. I can definitely think of, of one. And I think it's all the, the opposite of everything I talked about. It's disengaged. It's doing exactly as you said, not really listening to the situations like it's not that bad. Go figure it out. That type of approach because you don't really need help at this level. You're, you're our leader. You, you don't need help. And uh, it's that, that type of mindset can, can really kind of diminish, I would say, team synergy, team productivity, 
that that alignment within the organization and and for me, it's just such a clear difference. As soon as you say that, I think of leaders that I worked for, especially early in my career, and I was so passionate and so committed to making that business the best business it could be. And it was just so interesting how many leaders were just like, oh, calm down, don't work so hard. Like just, you're taking this almost a little too seriously. I think that, you know, some of the worst examples of exclusion were the, you know, sort of the public chastising. The boss that I had would not stop short of publicly chastising you in front of a group, right? So, you know, the the fear of that, like, you know, if you're sort of sitting around a boardroom table with a group of people, you kind of hoped you weren't the one that was picked on. But sort of that public chastising was one that certainly was alive and well, you know, it was unrelenting. So there was at times when he wouldn't let things go in terms of, you know, sort of these public outcries <laughs> of, you know, times when you perhaps made a mistake. And and I'm like in my leadership practice now, when I'm talking to leaders and talking to my own staff, I mean, it's really important for you to actually try something and and fail. And if you fail, like assuming it's not catastrophic, like the most important experience is what you learn from that. So what I feel from sort of those public events being chastised is it meant that we were a very risk adverse culture. And it was, if the idea wasn't invented by the founding partners or the most senior members of the team, it wasn't well received. So as a result of that, I think we became very myopic in our development. We didn't have the level of creativity that you'd see in organizations at the same level. I also believe, Christine, that, you know, you you meet people in life for a reason, right? And so there's lessons to be learned, lessons that we we take with those with us. Lessons will be repeated until they're learned. I believe that as well. Somebody said that. I don't know who it was, but so I kind of look at it uh, that although they were challenging situations that I've gone through. I also grew from those experiences. It was kind of forced growth, to be honest. <laughs> That's right. But it, it was wasn't growth. my choice. Yes, it wasn't my choice. But you know what? I'm better for it. It's hard at the, in that moment to think about it and, oh, what can I take away from this? So, you know, no judgment if you're in that moment or in that right now and you can't take the good out of it. But I assure you, when you get out on the other side, if you look back and you go, what was it that was so painful? For me, it was taking it and looking at it and saying, I will never, I made make a commitment. I will never do that. I will never be that kind of a person because I'm going to etch this in my memory, how awful that made me feel. And therefore I will not do that to somebody else. If you were to offer a piece of advice for anybody that's listening right now, and they are truly committed to trying to be a best boss, what would you tell them? Like give them really tactical tips on what you would tell them to do next. First thing is reflect. So what were your experiences? So let's really reflect on who your best boss was or is versus the alternatives that we just covered and and really draw on that. And and I think the second one is really be self-aware of how you engage in situations because I think that's really important is being able to walk away from different situations and evaluate how you handled it. Did you do the best that you could, especially if you're getting feedback that, you know, 
basically draws out opportunities for improvement. Think about those things and really, really focus on if you can create an environment where people feel comfortable to give you the straight good feedback, you will be by far a much better leader for it. And as you and I both know, that unfortunate statistic that only 30% of North Americans are truly satisfied at work. So there are, that's telling me <laughs> in the context of our conversation, how many people are aspiring to be the best boss ever. And perhaps more importantly, how many organizations are aspiring to enable people to be the best boss ever. Unfortunately, a lot of great bosses work in not so great systems with too much work to do. And we owe it to great bosses to enable them to be that way. But when you made the comment about enabling people to be best boss ever material, it just dawned on me. I haven't thought about that element of it Mm. and how I think for me, that was one of the most frustrating parts of being a leader was Mm -hmm. that I felt like I was in an organization where they were more worried about me being too kind than they were almost worried that somehow I was going to be so soft that all the results were going to fly out the window. And meanwhile, my argument was exactly the opposite where I was like, why don't you just let me, let me do it my way. And let's prove, let's prove it. Because all I know is I was nominated for manager of the year by the people who worked for me. So like, let me prove it and let me show you whether or not it works. But people were so scared that the results were going to drop on my team because I was doing things as Mm -hmm. thank yous, right? Non-monetary things. Love it. That's what number one way people want it. Well, right. Because I didn't have, you know, a big bag of money to give out as gifts. And so I was always trying to come up with clever ways. And a lot of the times it might be, you know, a special occasion or some way mm-hmm. that somebody could spend that extra evening with their, with their family so that they mm-hmm. could come back on Monday and feel like, Hey, my boss gave me a little extra here this week. I'm going to give a little extra this week. And like, you know, to create yeah. that trade. So the one thing that I've become more and more just congruent with probably the last five years, I mean, COVID really helped me bring it home even further is when, when somebody hears the word brand, they think of a company, right? Apple, Google, Redax, et cetera. In sports, you have the logo on the front. That's the team, right? The logo that everyone recognizes, whether it's the you know the Dallas Cowboys or New York Yankees, all these big brands in the world. But it, the, the name on the back of the jersey, that's you as the individual. Being really mindful of your personal brand, personal brand. You, you're not getting out from underneath the company brand and it's not selfish and it's not egotistical. You have to be mindful of your personal brand. How do people talk about you behind your back? If I interviewed three to five people in your company and said, hey, tell me about this individual. What's great about them and what's not great about them? Are you aware of that? Do you even know your own profile? Have you ever done the disc profile or Drake or Dots? I and mean, there's a million of them out there. You go learn all of that, get coaching, right? I mean, that's what you, that's why you do what we do. Watching that person really truly look introspectively and say, I need to work on myself to be better within this bigger brand called the, com- the company, right? So I think that's something that gets lost. I mean, I, I hate to say this, and I won't name company names, but there are certain companies out there, they don't want that. They don't want you building your personal brand. They want you to be a worker bee. You show up at eight, get your one hour break at noon and you're off at five and we pay you the same money every two weeks. We don't want you to grow. We don't want to you know, disrupt the apple cart. Okay. But that's a problem. Those companies will never have that big culture that you and I talked about. 
the, the Dave Linegers of the world, you, they would never go work for that company because they promote branding at the individual level. So if you want to really take a good hard look in the mirror about the company that you want to work with, you want to look at, can I grow in this company? Can, uh, do they invest in me? Do they, do they, are they going to give me grief that I'm going to go take three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and need a day off without, without having to do PTO because I want to go to a seminar to be a better negotiator? I mean, that's where you start to see do they really believe in you. And I think that personal branding thing is so big and it gets lost for some reason in training. If we can't build a culture and an environment that people are excited to come to work, are motivated to come to work, feel like they're valued and appreciated, if somebody leaves, you know, or for whatever reason, we want to know why. Actually, we want to know way before they would ever leave to have a dialogue with them and and figure it out. Because our uh, the real goal is to is to create an environment where everybody is is happy to come to work, motivated to do what they do to the best of their ability, has an opportunity to grow, and just and just loves to come to work every day. We don't want people that don't want to come to work. I always say this: like culture is so interesting because culture you can't taste it or touch it, but people mirror each other. So if you yes. have you know that that requirement for highly engaged people as in you're creating the environment to make sure that they feel that it's a place that they want to be highly engaged again like that can carry a lot of weight so just when you're seeing your team members engaged in the job and feeling good you're so much more likely to emulate that than if everybody around you is like you know slogging one red flag means talk to another per- person two red flags is probably it's probably two red flags <laughs> right <laughs> three right. It's, it's a definite like don't go there <laughs> you know that i would say you know when do people not not see the red flags it's when they're desperate to get out of their situation that they're in right now so if you're desperate because you're in the survival mode you're more apt to make a mistake And I would say that is when you need to be the most cautious and do the most due diligence. And I, and on the flip side, I get, you know, I've got all these sort of like juxtapositions or these sort of oppositions to each other. The truth I think is, is also when you're in the thriving mode that I discuss or I've shared with you, I think it's easier to find the thriving again, because it's almost, you know, it's like a snowball effect. Like once you're in there, you just never really kind of gravitate back towards them. I, so I have one exercise. I'll give this to you. I don't remember if you and I did this. Obviously I'm a journal guy. What's written is real. And I carry this everywhere I go. And it's not a diary people. It's a, it's a journal. It's a capture mechanism. It's a thought. It's a, it's a quote. It's a movie. So I don't sit there every night going, dear Mike, oh, today was kind of a weird day. Right. That's not, that's a diary. This is a yeah. journal. Journaling is something that you just have close to you when you have random thoughts. So here's a journal exercise. Great prompt. You write down the always date your pages, right? Date the page so you can always remember. And you ask this one question. I am at my best when dot, 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 dot. And you fill up a whole journal page in bullet points. Now I know my journals have 28 lines. I've got six by nine. There's 28 lines on this journal. That's at least 28. I have to answer every single line 28 times. I am at my best when I wake up early. I am at my best when I work out. I am at my best when I have private, authentic, real time with my kids every night before they go to bed, right? Whatever, I'm just rattling stuff off. But you got to create that that best version of yourself because no one's going to do it for you. This manual wasn't gifted to you in college or law school for me. I had to go 
find people like Dan Lear and Tony Robbins and Robert Alderman to force me to do these kind of things. So I looked in the mirror and said, I'm at my best when, and I know what that is. And I know when I'm not there, if I'm incongruent in any way, it's stressful. You know, when you're not at your best, you know, this leader assimilation exercise where during the first week that I had this new leader on, on board, we went through an exercise of just five questions that she took us through as a team and just to help us get to know each other and understand our, our styles. And so one of the things, the, the question, the first question was, what's the ideal work environment that you enjoy? How do you make decisions? What does it look like when you're stressed? How do you show up when you're stressed? What is your preferred way of communication? And the last one was, how can we help you? What I've learned is the sooner or the earlier you, you take this approach and you get an understanding, the less your chances are you're going to have misunderstandings, right? In terms of the teams and less assumptions. And so it's really powerful. One of the things that I think is hardest for leaders when they're thinking of their teams and performance is giving feedback or feed forward. And what I really like, I don't know if you've heard of Kim Scott, Radical Candor. Have you heard of her? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's so great. What I really like about that model and just the concept is that you really are, are showing genuine care when you tell someone the truth. And, you know, I really encourage people to, to be open and to share feedback in real time. And the way that I position it often in, even in my informal and formal performance discussions is that I need to tell you the truth because I do care because, you know, life happens, things happen. And if I'm not here or something happens, I want you, I don't want there to be any surprises. I want people to say, you know, I don't want them to say, how comes they're not aware of this? And I, and if you're not aware, and if I don't make you aware, then I'm not setting you up for success. So. I think it's so important and it's difficult, I know, for some people because they feel they're hurting somebody or they're, you know, you're really not really doing them any favors by not telling them the truth. And in the absence of truth, they make up stories and, and that can be more, even more demotivating. And so my, my advice to folks is to really, you know, if you are seeing that there are things that aren't making people as effective as they could be whether it's through soft skills, technical, you really need to tell them the truth. And in real time, they'll be better for it. I jokingly say that it'd be nice to put in our job descriptions, must have a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to add that to my job description too. <laughs> I think that everybody can appreciate that. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.